Hey, Summit family. Well, I hope you had a wonderful week. And if not, I hope you have a better one this week. We're in a series, a series that is talking about hospice patients. It's a study done by a chaplain who works with people terminally ill who are in the last stages of life. And what they studied was the deepest regret of people who are on their deathbed. What, what would they do different if they could live their life over? So we close our series this weekend by talking about connection, relationships. You know, I remember a study by doctors that said your relationships are more important to your health than the food you eat or exercise. And I remember thinking, wow, so it's better to have good relationships and eat Snickers bars than to eat broccoli. But that's what they found. That's how vital they are to our well-being. So if you have a Bible, I'm in John 19, verse 25 through 27. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, John took her into his own home. You know, for our sermon series, we've been looking at lessons to be learned from hospice patients as they reflect back on their lives. Knowing their days are ending, what do they wish they would have done differently? Now, so far we've learned they would have taken more risks, they would have focused more on enjoying the present, and they would have forgiven a lot more easily. And today, as we talk about the importance of staying connected, we'll not only hear from the voices of the dying, but we can see this lesson played out from an unlikely source. How about a goose? I read an article about the migration patterns of geese, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, wow, Rick, when's the movie coming out? But it was actually very educational and interesting. For example, did you know why they fly in a V pattern? It's because as each bird flaps its wings, it provides uplift for the bird immediately following it. And by flying in that pattern, the whole flock adds about 71% greater flying distance than if each bird only flew on its own. Wow, there's a lesson there, huh? Two are better than one. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. So the article also said when the lead goose gets tired, it rotates to the back of the V, and another goose takes the point. The geese are constantly honking as a way of encouraging those up front to keep up their speed, kind of like we do on 281 when it slows down. It's a sign of encouragement as well. Did you know that when a goose gets sick or it's wounded by a gunshot, two geese immediately fall out of formation and follow him down to help protect him? They stay with the downed goose until he is able to fly or until he's dead. Then they launch out to catch up with their major flock. Okay, Rick, now what's this about? Animal planet? No, no, no. I think the behavior of the geese teach all of us an important lesson. We need each other for survival. God made us for relationships, not to be alone, 
Scripture says it is not good for a man to be alone. Now, from geese to humans, we were not created to be alone. Without each other, there's no one to provide uplift or give us a honk of encouragement and no one to take the lead for a while or to sit with you when you've been shot down. You know, even as he was dying on the cross, Jesus knew the importance of making sure his loved ones were connected to each other. We need our relationships with each other to survive. And I think the irony is that we live in a world that discourages deep, authentic relationships. Our methods of communication are growing more numerous and less substantial. Our technological push for convenience and instantaneous results really doesn't leave much time to actually relate to each other. We are less connected now, even with those closest to us. Here's a good example. Several years ago, one day our home phone rang, so my wife Cindy answered it, and it was our daughter Alicia who was sick. And she's asking mom to get her something. However, she was calling from her bedroom. So that's the dilemma we face. We need relationships to survive. And yet we live in a world where making and nurturing those kinds of relationships is becoming increasingly difficult. You know, it takes time to do that, and that's exactly what we seem to have less and less of. Artist George O'Keefe once said, quote, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small, it takes time, and we don't have time. And to see takes time, like having a friend takes time. See, a Facebook friend, that's not really a friend. There's got to be some human you can touch and talk to and feel. It's substantive. In order to enhance our productivity, God puts divine connections in all of our lives. My life has been enriched by different people who have touched me and made my life better and different and lifted me higher. And I'll guarantee you, you can think of a couple of people as well. You know, God connects you with people and God connects you with a church. Who you connect with will determine how you run, the direction you run, how fast you run, and how far you run. For example, Proverbs 18, verse 1, says, A man who isolates himself, that's a guy who's alone, seeks his own desire. He rages against all judgment. In other words, there's nobody to hold him accountable. He doesn't want to be in any relationship. But you need a relationship to bring the best out in you. You can't grow alone. Laban, for example, he needed a Jacob. Ruth needed a Naomi. Joseph needed a butler to get out of that prison. Pharaoh needed a Joseph to solve a, an economic problem. Elisha needed an Elijah. Mordecai needed an Esther to save a nation. The Ethiopian eunuch needed a Philip to preach the gospel to him. The Philippian jailer needed a Paul, and Paul needed a Barnabas. Everybody needs somebody. God made you and I for connection. Psalm 68, verse 6 says, God sets the solitary, the alone, in families. I wonder if we take the time to stay connected, or do we let other things we think are more important get in the way? 
You know, the lesson the hospice patients have to teach us is that there is nothing more important than those divine relationships. You know, I remember when I got a reaction to a chemical. I had a shoulder surgery right here on my rotator cuff, and they gave me some kind of a narcotic to knock me out temporarily while they cut into it and sutured it. And I remember I had a horrible reaction, and I couldn't eat. I had panic attacks. I would shake. I could not lie down. I had to pace the floor, and I had zero appetite. That was the most horrible 10 days of my life. And remember Casey Treat found out about it? I didn't tell him. He flew all the way down here with my friend from Russia, Slava. Refused to take a penny. Preached all the services. Came to my home. Visited me. Loved me. Prayed over me. And then flew straight back home. You got that kind of a friend? Everybody needs that kind of a friend. Somebody who doesn't get anything out of it, but it's there for you. You know, a guy who was part of a Facebook group for a baseball uh, fans uh, group, the association, said there was a man on the board he had never met, but he felt a close connection because they, they were both fanatics about baseball and they were both Christians. This man was a religious professor at Georgetown College, and he was a wise, calming presence when he was in the group. So this guy really wanted to meet him, so they set a lunch date. Well, the day before, he took a look at his schedule and just couldn't justify taking a leisurely drive to Georgetown to spend time with this man. So he wrote him and asked if they could reschedule for a time when he was less busy. Well, the professor graciously agreed, but four weeks later, the professor died of a heart attack. And every day since then, this guy wondered what he missed out on by choosing his schedule over having lunch with this friend. Nothing is more important than relationships. They make you or break you. They push you down, they lift you up. They add to you, they subtract to you. He that walks with wise men, relationship, going to be wise. He that hangs around a bunch of losers, fools, is going to end up in the same mess they are. You know, last year in another nation, I gave up my only day off, preached eight times, my only day off to sit with a 30-year friend in divorce court. I, I wouldn't do that normally. But to sit in the court while he had to be subjected to, I'm sure, embarrassment and uh, pain, I, I thought, well, the best thing I can do is just sit by him and pray and be there. And sometimes that's all you can do with a friend is just be there. So what keeps us from starting new relationships or investing time in the ones that we have? See, one reason is our fear of being hurt. You know, to build a relationship, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, to open yourself up to the other person. And we all know that sometimes you can get hurt when you do that. Now, the chapter in the book called Let Your Heart Be Broken. What a title, huh? It says, quote, in order to experience true love, you have to take the risk that love will end. Every pet owner knows this. When you get a pet, you're balancing the reward of owning that pet with the absolute certainty of the death of that pet, knowing it'll be devastating. So do you just never own a pet in order to protect yourself? Or do you take the risk in order to experience the benefits of love and companionship with that little creature. 
You know, another fear we named was fear of not being good enough to be loved. What if I'm not able to make the other person happy? What if I'm not able to be the relationship partner they want me to be? What if they reject me? Now, all of those are realistic fears and possibilities, but you're also giving a lot of power to the other person to define your worth. And I urge you, don't do that. And as long as we let somebody else dictate whether we're going to be happy or not, we'll never be happy. I'll tell you something. After 75 years, I've never been in any relationship in which I was happy 100% of the time. Oh, if you have, please write a book because a lot of us are looking for that magic elixir to fix our lives. See, what if love isn't making somebody happy? What if love is simply being there during the happy times, the sad times, the I want to wring your neck times? See, love is not defined by a single event or an argument or a hurtful word or a moment of neglect. Here's what Scripture says. Love is patient and kind and all these other things. That's in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is defined by a constant presence, a consistent connection through the mountaintops and valleys of our lives together. You know, another fear is the cost of relationships. As George O'Keefe noted, staying connected takes time. And boy, that seems to be the scarcest commodity of all. You know, because of this hectic lifestyle we live, a couple of things happen. First, we begin to see our relationships for the utilitarian function. That is, what's our return on the investment to connecting to somebody? What do I get out of it? See, we often are loved for what we can do for someone else, not for who we are. So we put conditions on our relationships. If you have something to offer me, then I'll stay connected with you. You know, some people only call when they need something, the name of a book or a recipe or a curriculum suggestion. They rarely call just to say, hey, just catching up, just checking in. How are you doing? And my best friends, we do that every week. How's it going? Just checking in. Why? You know, because in our task-driven mind, it's a waste of precious time to do that. But it's not a waste of time. It's an investment of my time. The other thing we do when we start counting the cost of our relationships is that we measure their value with the wrong criteria. One hospice nurse, she wrote of visiting a man's home as he was dying. She said he lived in a lavish house in a brilliant neighborhood, and it was filled with trinkets and collections from his travels around the world. When the hospice nurse remarked about all the luxurious surroundings and stuff he had acquired— he scoffed, and he said, quote, who cares? Those things don't mean anything to me. I chased them all my life, and now I have a house full of possessions, and I'm dying alone. Those things don't matter. Love matters. Wow, that's so true. In the end, when we're facing the possibility of death, the hospice patients tell us what we do for a living doesn't make a flipping difference. What we earn doesn't matter. The degrees on our wall don't matter. The stuff we have amassed doesn't matter. 
In fact, I was telling my wife, we were, you know, cleaning out the closets and making some changes there. And I remember telling her, I says, when I die, you get a U-Haul trailer and you back it up from some charity and you dump this stuff. You get rid of it immediately. It doesn't matter at all. Throw it away. Give it to somebody who can use it. And I'm sincere about that. I don't have any use for it. You know, you can't take it with you. So in the big picture, what matters are the connections we have made and the love that we've nurtured with one another. Because in the end, that's what we'll leave this earth with and nothing more. I remember when one of our friends here, one of our great servants here, Benny Torres, suffered a, a stroke up in Dallas, just had the family up. They were celebrating the birthday of one of their kids, and he had a stroke and lost the movement on his left side. He could have died. And, you know, he's part of a house group, a connect group with Bobby Davis and Missy. And I remember, I didn't know till later when they were already in, the, they jumped in their truck, packed their bag overnight, drove all the way to Dallas, went straight into that hospital room to be at the side of their friend. I say again, you got anybody that'll drive to Dallas to stand by you in a hospital when you could die? I hope so. But if you do, you'll have to invest time in that relationship, and that's a cost. You know, in her book, What Really Matters, Karen Watt tells this story. Let me read it to you. One of the most memorable patients was Vernon, a former Baptist minister who commanded great authority with his presence. He preached thunderous sermons from the pulpit until he was diagnosed with lung cancer at age 70. Even in his illness, he always wanted to talk theology with me when I visited, and I could see the fire in his eyes as he expounded this or that belief. His wife, Lydia, said, Vernon kept a notebook by his bedside and by the chair that he sat in, and he would often write sermon notes or devotional thoughts in that notebook. The nurse says, as I visited with Vernon over the days, I watched him grow steadily weaker. The fire in his eyes dimmed. He, he, he still tried to write a little bit in his notebook, and he would show it to me just after I arrived, but all I saw was page after page of indecipherable scribble. Couldn't read it. I wondered what great sermons he was composing in his mind that he would never be able to share with anybody. As Vernon's end grew near, he became almost unresponsive. Lydia, his wife, was always by his side, but he, he even stopped responding to her. On the last night with him, Lydia kissed him on the cheek, and before she left, she wrote in his notebook, I love you, Vernon. Love, Lydia. She placed the notebook on his chest and went to her bedroom to sleep. The next morning, she was awakened by the nurse who let her know Vernon had passed peacefully during the night. She hugged him, kissed him, squeezing his hand, and then she straightened his blanket. Then she noticed his notebook sitting on the bedside table. Underneath the note that she wrote to him was Vernon's scribbles that had not been there the night before. And then, barely legible, were eight shaky chicken scratched letters that Vernon had copied from Lydia's note that said, I love you. And that's all we leave this world with. And what a shame. 
What a shame it would be if we let some petty argument or family disagreement or self-doubt keep us from being connected. God's got somebody for you. What a shame it would be if we let ourselves think we weren't worthy of being loved or if we let our busy schedules or our inconsequential distractions take precedent over making a new friend. Staying connected takes time. It's an investment. And real love can hurt. But when we get to the end of our lives, that's all we'll have. That's all that matters. Would you bow with me in prayer? With our heads bowed, look at the people around you. Those angels who have enriched your life, who have moved you forward and helped you to become a better person. I think of the person who led me to Jesus. He's in heaven now. I shall forever be grateful. And a business luncheon, he shared good news with me, and I gave my life to Jesus. Thank God for these people, because at a critical point in your life, God sent someone your way. Let me ask you to examine the role of everyone in your life. Ask God for courage to disengage from toxic relationships. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.